When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Every investor in the world wants to catch the wave of the next big trade. There's no time machine to go back and buy Amazon in 2013 or Apple in 2009. But what we can do is talk to the world's best traders about their next big buy. Join me, Harry Melandry of MI2 Partners, as we do exactly that on The Next Big Trade. Reducing your energy costs by shrinking your economy, I said, is like being an MMA fighter making weight by cutting off your arm. Does it work? Of course it does. Are you going to win the fight? No. Are you going to bleed out and die in front of everybody? Yep. And so is the EU, uh, unless they change their energy policy. Quick. Welcome to the next big trade, and thanks for joining us. This week, I'm speaking to Luke Groman, founder and president of Forest for the Trees, LLC. FFTT is dedicated to doing uh, the in-depth analysis that creates differentiated money-making insights to inform clients' investment processes and investment outcomes. Luke, it's a pleasure to meet you. How's it going? It's going well. How about yourself, Harry? Nice to meet you. So I was looking uh, at your website because I try and always do my minimum due diligence. This week, I think I may have failed. And I noticed this, the, the, this tagline on your website, which says, I help investors turn down the noise and tune into what really, what actually matters. So how do you do that? <laughs> That's the secret sauce. Uh, I don't know. Um, to tell you the truth, uh, I read a lot. I don't know what I'm looking for. Uh, I know it when I see it. Uh, I can see things that are important when they're important and how they're important and why they're important. And uh, we put those pieces together uh, in a unique manner for our clients and uh, trying to identify developing economic bottlenecks and, and uh, help people make money. You know, yes, I'm, I'm all in favor of making money. It, it, you know, sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. And uh, yeah, I, I could do with making more money. Um, so uh, we're all about uh, the next big trade. What's your next big trade? My next big trade is uh, the interplay of energy and uh, the global sovereign debt crisis that is now unfolding. Oh, it's funny, actually. I've been doing a lot on this uh, this question myself, but I haven't gotten to the point where I've got anything worth sharing. Tell me what you're thinking. What What's the trade? The trade, I think, is ultimately be long energy. Uh, coal, yes. Uh, oil, yes. Gas, yes. Uranium, yes. Uh, corn, yes. Soy, yes. Uh, electric vehicle metals, yes. Copper, yes. Uh, even gold is a derivative of energy. I think Bitcoin's a derivative of energy. All, you want to be long energy in all of its derivatives because of what's transpiring. You've got peak cheap energy and you have the first global sovereign debt bubble bursting in 100 years. And historically, when you have global sovereign debt bubbles burst, there's a couple outcomes. They can restructure the debt. They can, or they can default on the debt. Uh, or they can print the difference. And sovereigns almost always print the difference. And so you've got this historically unique period where 
Uh, we are transitioning from a higher energy return on invested energy source to a trying to go to a lower one, uh, which has never happened in humans' history. Uh, yes, people always say, oh, you know, the Stone Age didn't end for lack of stones. Correct, because it went to the Bronze Age and then from the Bronze Age to the Steel Age and coal, oil. It was always better. We're trying to transition from something that has a lower return on invested energy. Uh, it's never happened before. Uh, best case, it's going to be a lot more expensive. Uh, at the same time, we have a record level of sovereign debt centered in the West, not the emerging markets for a change. Uh, and that really hasn't happened since the aftermath of World War One. But the last time it did happen, all six of the major parties to World War One, the major industrial nations, all saw their sovereign debt fall by 75 to 100 uh, percent against gold uh, as a as a proxy for commodities. And um, uh, two of those six hyperinflated their currencies to zero, all in the span of five to 10 years. So you've got something on the unit of account side. They're going to have to print a lot of money to keep sovereign debt nominally solvent. And you've got something on the geological side, if you will, where uh, it's not that we're running out of oil. Uh, it's not that we're running out of energy. It's that it's getting more expensive uh, to find and produce and replace. And so you're shifting from lower cost resources to higher cost resources at a time where you have a debt position where uh, it cannot afford higher cost anything without more central bank money printing. So how do we express those views? Because it's not as straightforward as I'm going to buy oil companies. If the energy cost of getting energy is going up, the oil companies might be in just as bad a position. You know, it doesn't prove that they're going to make more money. So how, how do you express that? I think you express it across a pretty diversified, broadly uh, defined, for the average investor at least. I mean, this is not a, hey, I want to make money next week kind of thing. I want to make money next month. I mean, it might make money in the next week or month. I don't know. That's not really what we do, though. Um, I think as you look out over the next couple years, you own energy broadly defined, oil companies, gas companies, coal companies, uh, uranium companies, uh, copper companies, silver companies, agricultural land, um, agricultural fertilizers, uh, anything that is an energy derivative, uh, gold, silver, Bitcoin, all of these things are essentially energy derivatives uh, to varying extents. And ultimately, if we are not going to have a truly cataclysmic outcome, um, they're going to have to go up a lot in price over the next several years. So I can imagine them going up in price, but I'm not so clear that them going up in price has to make me money. For example, Exxon has got a new oil discovery off the coast of Suriname. And they already are exploiting an oil discovery off the coast of Guyana. Now, these are great things, and they're going to work, and they're going to make Exxon money. But they're going to make less money than prior discoveries on the mainland of the United States, because they're deep. So you have to sink deep wells. BP has some prior experience sinking some deep wells in the Gulf. It didn't work out quite like they planned. Um, they ended up having to pay for Louisiana for multiple years. It was expensive. It did them a lot of harm. And I own the damn stock, by the way. I haven't forgiven BP's management for screwing up that bad. 
Um, and I don't think the people who lived on the coast of Louisiana and, and the affected states were that happy with BP either. So it, it just isn't, it's not an easy thing to just get long of energy. Um, in the, in the kind of situation where the marginal cost of producing the energy is going up. So is it really true that you can buy anything or do you have to be a little bit more selective or a little bit more targeted? Well, I think it starts to get into a question of let's pretend that it, that it is a lot more expensive and let's pretend that it doesn't go well and the energy doesn't come, come to market. That's Europe right now. Right. You start shrinking energy consumption. Do you put your money in sovereign bonds? They're not going to be able to pay. They're not going to be able to. They're going to default on those. The economy starts shrinking with debt to GDP as high as it is. You go into a debt, into a debt death spiral. So if that's the case, if they don't succeed in bringing this mark this energy to market profitably, broadly defined, given the debt position starting at the sovereign level again, Western, given that the sovereign debt is the capital of the banking system. This is their safety asset they're supposed to be selling if things start to go pear-shaped. You're into an environment where one of two things are going to happen. You're going to see a broad-based debt default across sovereigns, or the central banks are going to come in and they're going to grow their balance sheets extraordinarily. And historically, the central banks grow their balance sheets extraordinarily. They, they, they will not allow sovereign debt defaults historically. Um, and if that's the case, given that choice, would I rather own, you know, farmland or sovereign debt? Would I rather own a uranium mine or sovereign debt? Would I rather own Exxon or sovereign debt? I would rather own any of those things than sovereign debt if you start to have a decline in energy output. Yeah, I can. That, that logic kind of makes sense to me. I can see that. So let's let's do a step through because you know, maybe people haven't been spent. God knows I spent a lot of time on this issue recently, right? I, I, uh, I work for Julian Brigden and he sends me off to do research. And this is one of those questions that he sent me off to do research on. And I'm kind of hankering after the previous one, which ones, which were like China, because this one just takes forever to do the research. I mean, working and working on, but stepping through the logic on, say, Germany. So Germany doesn't have any gas because they were buying their gas from some other country to the east doesn't have enough gas now to support its bulk chemicals industry bulk chemicals industry consumes a hell of a lot of that gas but it was also 10 percent of gdp so if you switch off the entire bulk chemicals industry which does look like roughly speaking you know first order approximation what they'll have to do you're going to lose 10 percent of gdp and you've lost the value of those investments maybe you'd mark them down with depreciation odds are you haven't because the things were making a lot of money Right. So all of a sudden, no, fer no fertilizer produced in the Eurozone because there's no gas, no this, no that, no that. And all the, the value of that capital stock goes to approximately zero because what's the use, the value of a secondhand nitrogen plant when, you, when it's in the wrong country and there's no gas? It's a, it's a very expensive paperweight, big paperweight. Yeah. So, okay, great. Um, Germany won't be perceived to be completely insolvent in one go. So the debt will deteriorate, but it won't completely collapse. GDP will go down, but we might get the paradoxical situation where because the demand destruction is so substantial, the energy prices, gas prices in Europe might come down temporarily. Um, in fact, that's kind of what you're seeing right here, right now. Um, so that's why I think that way of just being indiscriminate. You're right that if you cross everything off the list, which is not energy, 
you're liable to do well, to do better than if you, you know, just excluding the non-energy plays will probably give you a leg up, right? But the ones you want are the ones where the cost of energy is low and where they can continue to produce. And the ones where the cost of energy is high, they're going out of business, right? They're, they're going to be gone as well. So it's, it's, that's why I'm arguing. The problem with that is that's Russia. <laughs> Russia's the low cost guy and he's turning east and he's going to turn off Russia. He's going to turn off the EU. And ultimately, like you said, he'd turn off in the EU. Uh, you know, I just tweeted about this is, is reducing your energy costs by shrinking your economy. I said, is like being an MMA fighter making weight by cutting off your arm. Does it work? Of course it does. Are you going to win the fight? No. Are you going to bleed out and die in front of everybody? Yep. And so is the EU, uh, unless they change their energy policy. Quick. So how should they change it? What, what would you suggest they do? Uh, I would suggest that they reach a detente with Russia uh, and they start buying energy in euros and they settle it in gold at a, at a floating rate. Oh, I don't think that's coming anytime soon. You, you may well be right, Luke. Um, you, it's unfortunate you may well... if it isn't, because there's going to be a lot of – it's going to be a humanitarian disaster if they don't. But Because the, <laughs> they think they're going to get LNG from us. Like We're talking about LNG shortages in the Northeast. And if Europeans think that we're not going to cut off gas if it's a bad domestic political situation, they have not been paying attention to America for the last 50 years. Sorry, so did you this, say – did you say LNG shortages in the Northeast? I no. live in the Northeast. Now it's becoming serious. Let's talk about gas shortages in, in New England. And, you know, here in Cleveland, where nobody wants to be, uh, and nobody wants to build pipelines out of, thank God, gas is cheap. Food is cheap. Water is cheap. Everything's... <laughs> but in New England, there may be gas shortages this winter, they're talking about. And so it'll be real interesting to see if Europe gets... Uh, if Europe gets LNG from America once, um, you know, people in the Northeast uh, see their energy bills quadruple uh, and start screaming at Biden. Europe, Europe will get some LNG from the United States and mostly Canada, actually. We're really talking about Canada, aren't we? But it won't. It, it's, it's just a drop in the bucket compared to what they need, what they were getting from the Russians. So it's like we're talking about an order of magnitude of 10. They were getting about Germany, I think, was getting 150 billion cubic meters of gas. And the amount the US might export to Europe is 15 cubic billion cubic meters of gas might with a following wind and you know, <laughs> people feeling feeling charitable. So yeah, I agree 100% with you that there is a serious problem here. Um, that problem may not manifest in a disastrous way this year, this calendar year, uh, partly because it depends on weather. And partly because they have bought every piece of floating storage and storage they could utilize as stuff full of gas in Western Europe right now. They have, they've, they've done their best to mitigate the problem. Um, next year, that might be a different question. And that also assumes credit markets hold together because what piece in that to me is the real weak mark in all of this, which is why do I hold a bond in Europe when the PPI in Germany is 45%? And the answer is, I'm an idiot. You know, I mean, who holds PPI at 45% and the yield at two? Like, why do you, why? Knowing that the worst isn't even here yet. And the answer is it isn't. And so to me, I think there's two situations. There's the gas situation. There's the physical gas situation 
and how that relates to gas prices. And I, there's the more important and much more acute credit market blowback, which is to say you're probably a few months from credit markets in the West collapsing without central bank interest, serious central bank money printing, given all of what's happening on the energy side, which, again, I think reverberates back into energy markets ultimately in terms of commodity prices. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So I'm curious, step me through why the credit markets collapse. I'm not disagreeing, although I retain the right to, you know how it is. Um, but I'm curious about the step by step that results in that credit market collapse. So it really comes down to um, the United States. The United States right now is moving toward recession. We're tightening. Uh, the United States right now, if you look at what we pay in entitlements alone, uh, it's about $2.9 trillion, $2.8 trillion a year. Cost of living adjustment on the Social Security portion is up about 10%, 9% to be precise, for next year. Uh, if you apply that 9% across the entire entitlement bill uh, for 2023, uh, you're going to, and then you assume uh, a modest recession in the United States, which is now, I think, seen as fait accompli. If you assume a what we have seen in uh, the minimum tax revenue decline in the United States we have seen in a recession, just a plain vanilla recession, year over year is 20%. If you assume a 20% tax receipt decline in the United States and a 9% increase, 10% increase across the board in entitlement expense, entitlement expense in 2023 alone for the United States of America will be between 85 and 90% of tax receipts. Uh, then you throw interest expense, easily going to be a trillion two, trillion three, uh, pro forma, a trillion five. You're going to be already 120% of tax receipts. Defense on top of that, another eight, 900 billion. That's just the big three items. They're going to be about 140, 150% of tax receipts. From there, one of two things can happen. Either the Fed can monetize the difference, go back to QE with energy prices high, send energy prices higher to finance the difference, or the United States government is going to crowd out England. They're going to crowd out Europe. They're going to crowd out the entire world. We have the reserve currency. The dollar is going to go higher and higher. U.S. Treasury yields will go higher and higher. As U.S. Treasury yields go higher and higher, tax receipts will fall faster and faster. And that down 20 will turn into down 30, down 40, down 50. Meanwhile, the entitlements and the interest, well, the interest in particular, will go up and up and up. And wash, rinse, repeat until either we get Interest. I mean, you're going to see, you know, to tenure, you know, ten percent mortgage rates in the U.S. Sure, why not? It's that there's no break on that system except for the Fed uh, to step in and renew QE with oil at eighty-five dollars and rising. So that's ultimately it's it's people say the dollar's the center of the system. Yes, it is. And the dollar's the center of the system. That works. That that's that's a two-edged sword. And the way this cuts is we will crowd out the world. We are going to have a shortfall relative to just the interest component of of the United States government's expenditures, the true interest, the entitlements which are just interest and the int actual interest.
And how much of this is because, so I, I see your logic and I see where it came from. I don't, I mean, I could dispute elements of it, but not the broad thrust. I suspect the timing is a little slower. You've got quite an apocalyptic timing. Normally I like apocalyptic. It's kind of my middle name, but, <laughs> but, but, um, yes, yeah, what happens when you spend a career in fixed income, right? You're like, Oh, look, disaster. Um, but um, in this particular case, I'm I'm going to push back and you know try and travel and hope and say this is a slower process and it's you're, you're describing a decade or longer process, not a not a couple of years. So over time, it will get worse and worse. And it will, but um, is isn't the underlying the big event that made this happen the war between Russia and Ukraine and our attempts to block Russian hydrocarbon exports? from global markets. And the more successful we are in doing that, the worse the problem is for us. And the less successful we are, like if this stuff leaks back into the market via India, has become a huge exporter of refined product. Who knew? Who, <laughs> who knew India could re export refined product? Um, then the problem is mitigated. So is, is that fair? On a surface level, yes. Um, it doesn't get rid of the peak cheap, the geology, the geology side, right? The biggest marginal producer of oil in the last 10 to 15 years has been U.S. shale. U.S. shale, the biggest four basins right now, are depleting at a 5.8% per month rate. Now, what, what the hell happened there? Why, why is shale depleting faster than the previous geological assumptions? Is that because never trust a Texan peddling a geological uh, projection? Is that the, the general gist? No, that's, that's, it's been the story the whole time. It's just, you know, the, the, the Texans will be the first one to tell you, like, you know, you, you hear the Wall Street guys and, and, you know, the guys that, you know, go, hey, look at that, we're the biggest oil producer, hashtag Murica. And the Texans are very quick to say, well, you should put an asterisk next to that. And they don't want to hear the asterisk. And the asterisk is you, 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 you drill a shale well, production spikes higher, it stays really high, it rolls over, it collapses in the span of three to six months, and then there's a long tail on it. It's a very different bell curve than what you see in a typical conventional oil field. Uh, and the the problem is, is that once it's the Red Queen problem, right? I forget who coined that phrase, right? But you got to run faster and faster just to stay in the same place. Uh, well, I, I could tell you who coined the well, because it's obviously from Alice in Wonderland. So it's, it's <laughs> exactly somebody applied it to energy. I forget who that person is, right? Uh, but yeah, uh, uh, Lewis Carroll obviously coined it initially. So um, the. The, the point here as it relates to Russia and the normalization that people aren't looking at, the potential normalization that people aren't looking at is twofold. Number one, four point, a 5.8% monthly decline rate means you've got to find 400 to 500,000 barrels per month and produce them more just to stay flat. That changes with how fast you produce, right? So if you cut, you know, if you cut production uh, or drilling entirely in, in the four big shale basins, you won't decline production 70%, right? 5.8% times 12, because the rate of decline will decline as you stop drilling. But you'll, you'll drop 25, 30, 40% in the first year, um, number one. Number two is it's a capital intensive business. 
It's very capital intensive. There's, there's, there's three things, right, that drove shale, the biggest marginal oil production over the last 10 years. It's expensive oil, cheap money, low rates, and technology, the, the long lateral, steerable laterals that, that basically got, were really good at sucking a lot more out all up at the front of the curve and then having this long tail. That, that was productivity. So what are we talking about doing? We're talking about knocking oil down, selling oil out of the SPR. The Fed's literally working against, work, by raising rates, the Fed is literally working to kill U.S. shale. Who benefits if, if, if shale gets hurt? Putin. Nice job, Fed. Congratulations. You're ceding more of the market to the Saudis and the Russians. Which, okay, like you're, they're, they're, it's a count, a, to counter purposes. But my point is, is that, okay, let's say that happens. There's still this fundamental underpinning where, number one, the shale industry has drilled most of its best locations. You're down to B and C locations. So the, the break-even cost is rising. Number two, the government is fighting against it. They're basically trying to peg oil for some reason, right? They don't want it to get too high because that's, you know, Putin wins. They don't want it to get too low because Putin wins. So they're now talking about a Fed put on the oil market. Great. In the meantime, in the real world, if you're an oil producer with high capital costs, high and rising capital costs, why on God's green earth? And oh, by the way, they're talking about killing your industry in 30 years. Yes. Why on God's green earth would you ever put money in the ground? You'd, you'd have to be an idiot. And so guess what they're not doing? Putting money in the Putting ground. Putting money in the ground. So it sets up to be like, like how, do you not own it? how do you not own energy? They're, they're literally trying to create a shortage of energy on purpose. Yeah. So you, you were going for all those other points that I thought, you know, they go kind of go both ways. But that last point on the ESG issue and everything, I think that's the, that's what's really put us where we are. That's not to say that I'm, I don't agree with the aims of ESG. I think the environment is a good thing. Um, and I live in the environment and I, I, I plan to continue to live in the environment for a while. I think social and gov and you know governance issues are all important, but it's definitely the case that we that the combination of the woeful returns from the previous wave of shale investments, like you put money into Texas shale in the past, you lost it, it went. You know, it's it's that South Park episode where the FX guy says, and it's gone. That's what happened to previous shale investments. So it was poor, but then you know it's a boom bust kind of industry cycle. The, that combined with ESG absolutely killed investment in hydrocarbons. The the big companies, the big oil majors, they were investing, but really, you know, they were only investing in the top, least marginal, most mainstream, you know, most re regenerative, uh, cash flow generative deals they could find. Um, we've underinvested and this, you know, the industry requires huge investment. Um, and what bothers me is there is no real alternative yet. We talk about renewables and renewables are great, but renewables will require vast amounts of energy to get them out of the ground as well. You have to dig out your metals to mine them. Then you have to refine them and coil them around into windmills. And then I'm not even sure what the energy rate of return on renewables is. Sometimes I read things which make me optimistic and I think, great, the energy rate of return on renewables is positive, hooray. And other times I read things which tell me it's deeply negative. I don't know. So if we have a negative rate of energy rate of return on energy, 
then we are just digging a hole towards collapse. We're just getting nowhere near a sustainable future. Um, on the other hand, I'll give the Fed a lot of credit because by raising interest rates, they are killing global demand. <laughs> They've killed it in the emerging markets. Um, when you kill global demand, you reduce the demand for energy just as much. And so or, or maybe more, you know, at the margin. So you could argue that the Fed's trying to help the US by killing other people's demand for energy. Historically, that was a lot more true than it is now, because historically, oil was only priced in dollars, right? Energy was only priced in dollars. And so as soon as you got the dollar up, oil got more expensive. Now, when you have China's ability, India to a lesser extent, to buy energy and commodities in their own currency, that changes that game a little bit. It changes it a lot uh, from the standpoint that the world, the, the China in particular, um, they can manage their energy bill. They can print you on for oil. Um, they don't do it a whole ton in terms of you look at the balance of, uh, but ultimately, uh, this narrative of, you know, I mean, shoot, Kyle Bass was on CNBC talking about it four years ago. We're going to, you know, China imports a lot of oil. Oil is only priced in dollars. If they, as they increase their economy, they need more energy more dollars out. They're going to run out of dollars. Once they run out of dollars, energy or the, their, their economy collapses, their energy purchases collapse. And all of that's true, except if they start buying energy in yuan. And guess what the Russians are more than happy to do? Sell them energy in yuan. And so can they run out of yuan? No. Can the yuan fall? Yeah. Is the yuan falling? Yeah. Is, is, that, is that what I'd expect to see if they were pricing more energy in yuan? It's exactly what you'd expect to see. So you know, it's um, the energy market or the emerging market. Yeah, for the fringe ones, absolutely. The Fed's killing demand. Um, problem is, is that emerging markets for the first time in 200 plus years are, 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 are the majority of global GDP. So, like, again, we're back into this situation of you're cutting off your arm to make weight for a fight. You know, that's what the Fed's doing. Um, and so, yeah. So, I mean, it, it's. Between that and the debt situation, which is happening much faster than people think, um, you know, I mean, a perfect example when we were talking about before, um, in 2016, the big three expenditures of the United States, entitlements, defense, interest, were 68% of receipts, tax receipts. Next year, they're going to be 130, maybe, maybe 140, um, maybe, maybe worst case, 120. But the point is, is in six years you're already having to print money to print the difference. Uh, it's, it's switched that fast. So they're, 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 you've got the, the, the money printing side and you've got the energy side that I think are very powerful in terms of um, the outlook for energy prices. Um, I saw in some of the materials you sent to us, and by the way, thanks so much for that, right? It really helps, um, that you had focused on copper as a potential way of playing global energy. Um would you like to flesh that argument out a bit? It's, it's simplistic. For me, it's just you're not going to have electricity moving anywhere without it. And there's a war grade issue there like there is sort of everywhere else. Uh, you're not running out of it, but the grades are getting very, very poor. And uh, that ultimately raises the break-even level. Um and yes, that can weigh on miners' uh, margins in theory, uh, but ultimately the world's quickly getting to a choice of do you want to live in the dark or do you want to pay up for copper? And 
the world's going to say, I want the copper. And then the world's going to say, well, you can't afford copper and oil that expensive and afford the interest on that debt. And when that is Sri Lanka, then you have food riots and, 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 and the, the system collapses. When that's America, when that's Europe, when that's Britain, when that's Japan, when that's China, when they're going to print the money. And that's that. And so it's this very powerful, I think, virtuous dynamic between um, needing more, you know, basically the higher grade costs for iron, for copper, iron ore, oil, how, whatever, it's effectively raising rates on the system. I, you know, you are right about this. And I, it just flashed into my head how to kind of clarify why you're right. And I think the, the general gist of it is that, first of all, an existing producer who has a certain cost of production as the demand goes up, the existing producer will make more money. The marginal producer may be at break even, but the existing producer is getting a bigger margin for everything he produces. Um, so there's that. And then on the other end of this, what you're really looking for is to make essential sectors as small as possible compared to GDP. So what's a prosperous economy? Is it one where agriculture is 70% of GDP or one where agriculture is 1% of GDP? And what we found is it's great if you can get grow all the food you need when it only accounts for 1% of your economy's resources. The same argument works for energy production. What you'd want, ideally, is for energy production to be two, it should be 5% of GDP or, or 3% of GDP. Everything else, and we can all then devote ourselves to my particular vocation, which is, uh, personal training. Okay. Maybe it isn't, but we can, we can all devote ourselves to other economic activities and not focus on producing energy. And that we get a serious problem when we have to actually put more and more resources into energy production. It goes from 5% of GDP to 10% of GDP, because whatever the other 5% of GDP is, it's gone. We don't have it anymore. We don't have it anymore. And, and it's problematic when you are a fully equity-based society, right? So if everything is done on an equity basis, equity holders take their 5% loss, we all move on. Is what it is. With sovereign debt to GDP over 100%, with off balance sheet obligations at 500% for the Western social democracies, with $600 trillion in notional derivatives, you don't even have to go from 5% to 10%. You go from 5% to 7% of GDP on energy, and the whole system goes boom. Boom. Because if one guy bankrupts, one guy defaults, with, then notional becomes net, as we saw with Lehman. And so you have to you have to print the difference. I'm hoping we're gonna we're gonna do exactly that. Print the difference. I think Tim Geithner referred to it as foaming the runway for the banks in 2008. They they basically flooded the system with liquidity to protect the banks. I'm I would think think we're probably gonna do the same again. So yes, you're right. This will be inflationary, but it won't be a catastrophic systemic collapse. Um, like happened to Russia, by the way, in 1991 or so. It will just be a, a steady acceleration of inflation for the medium to medium term. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. 
Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. That's, I mean, that's, you know, Russia could also be one of the ways out. I mean, I'm sure there are people in Washington, if you want to look at this as Machiavellian and harsh, if you can get Putin out and get someone like Yeltsin in, who will sell Russia's energy and commodities to Western interests for pennies on the dollar, then... You're not, you're not selling Yeltsin here to the Russians, right? It's not, it's not obvious that this is going to appeal directly. So. I don't think that's what's going to happen this time. I think, you know, fool me once, you know, fool, fool me twice, won't get fooled again, like a, a po- poet laureate George Bush said. Yes. <laughs> The uh, um, yeah no that's 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 the issue they got to they got to print the difference. You've just kind of talked about one of the things that can go wrong with uh, the long energy trade, and I think the problem with the long energy trade isn't the long energy trade. I think it's obviously correct. The problem is exactly how you implement to avoid finding you bought the wrong thing, because uh, there are so many wrong things. Um, it wasn't that long ago that I was toying with a Peabody Energy corporate bond. I was thinking to myself. Maybe I should buy it because they're trading at, I think it was 20 cents in the dollar the thing was trading at. And I thought, it's got to have some residual value. And then as I pondered this, I thought, no, what possible residual value could a coal mine in West Virginia have? <laughs> so it turns out lack of imagination can cost you money. Um, what, what other things could go wrong with this logic? Why, why, why might we be being overly pessimistic? Uh, if you had a productivity increase, a, a massive phase shift productivity increase, um, you know, uh, nuclear fusion rolled out over the next five years, kind of a thing that would be where basically everybody gets free energy. Uh, that would that would obviously be a big difference. Uh, if you get a economic collapse, um, where you know. Given the depletion rate of your marginal sources of oil, what you're implying, in my view, the amount of economic collapse you would need to drive oil down. I mean, look, we we saw what it takes to drive oil down. As long as you shut down the global economy entirely, you can get oil negative. So let's start there, right? We know that for a fact. So let's let's say we can get oil down to you know forty bucks if we shut down forty percent of the economy. Well, we, we were really shutting down ninety five percent of some bits of the economy and five percent of others. So I was at home doing Zoom calls and wasn't flying. Um, but yes, you, you, if we have that COVID type economy where nobody flies and everyone's on Zoom, then we, we yeah we probably have got an oil demand down to where it needs to be. Yeah, and you could probably, but that then gets back to, we were all a little bit on Zoom calls and happy, but to your prior point, had the government not been handing out goodies for everybody, you and I both would have been out foraging for food, <laughs> right? Or, or, right? I mean, so that's the, that ties back to my other point, which is in the end, they're going to have to print the money. That's, I keep coming back to that where it's like, uh, because it's a political issue. I mean, the otherwise you can stand aside. What you're talking about is a population die-off of huge amounts. If you if they don't if if you collapse the economy enough to knock energy down and you don't come in with money printing, that's what you're talking about. Um, and that's that's harsh. 
That's and that's not my base case. That's not I don't I don't think they're going to allow that to happen. Well, there's different types. So like if a population dies off in another country, does it make a sound? I I I I think so the EU has its own peculiar problems at this point. The the European Union is a rich society. The UK is a rich society with poor pockets. They can you'll get a a reduction in the standard of living does not necessarily mean a reduction in the population. Um, but when I think about Africa, a reduction in the standard of living does mean a reduction in the population for large swathes of Africa. Um, and, uh, you know, this point, it's kind of important. Um, you were hinting at it, but I'm going to go there and make it explicit because I've got no judgment whatsoever, as you, everyone knows. Um, when the war with Russia happened, uh, the European Union did not have enough natural gas. Once, once those pipelines got shut down, for whoever shut them down, whether it was Putin or whether it was the other way around, doesn't matter. There was not enough natural gas. So the European Union has been out there overbidding uh, Sri Lanka, Argentina, uh, God knows who, Cameroon probably, for natural gas. Um, so now we have a whole bunch of third world countries who have all sorts of dire problems, including a shortage of natural gas, um, not to mention finding it quite hard to borrow money because, you know, times are tough out there. Um, this problem can get worse if if we let it. And a lot of the reason that Russian gas is not getting out is because it used to have a pipeline and now it doesn't. Um, it used to have other pipelines and those are closed. There's no real solution for those Russian hydrocarbons. They're trapped in Russia. God knows what they will do with it. I imagine burn them, actually. They'll see this they'll giant probably burn them yeah, for a bit. But, you know, you watch. They'll have a pipeline to China for the incremental within that's three a, years. That's a long way. It's a long way. It'll take, it'll take three years? I don't know. I think it could take longer. than. I, 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 I do not know what I'm talking about. I should shut up. Because, no, it, might, it very well might. It very well might. Now, it's ultimately like this then reverberates back. And to me, the second and third order effects are – very interesting in this whole situation because as you break, you're talking about a breakdown of supply chains, right? You're talking about, yeah, the Europeans are getting the gas they need, but their economy is shrinking. They're shutting down plants. They can't afford to make a whole bunch of things um, at these gas prices. Okay. We have just lived through two years where we saw where you don't have to break supply chains completely. You just need to remove a couple kinks in the chain links in the chain, and the whole supply chain collapses. We're talking about taking down European chemicals. We're talking about taking down big chunks of European steel production, copper production. Which is going to create this enormous bid for the, for the chemicals production that exists outside of Europe because there won't be enough capacity globally. Right, and that chemical production will be able to outbid everybody else for gas, including the Europeans. And so what's going to happen to gas? It's energy's the energy is the base load. I think we're in the early days of people remembering for for the last 40, 50 years we've been in the, really since World War II, but in the last 50 years, this world where people's wealth is somebody else's debt. Yeah, that's right. Because it was money good. And now the question good. is, is it money good? It's not money good anymore. As soon as you start straining 
the ability to turn that debt into energy, into work, into physical goods at a price resembling your institutional memory of where that should trade, it doesn't have to take long where it starts to change the mindset. And that's the very dangerous thing. And I think that that change in mindset is what has the Fed and the ECB and all these Western central banks freaked out the way they are, is they are getting dangerously close to the bond market going, I'd rather own energy, I'd rather own anything than this paper that you that your governments are putting out. And so I think that's what we're watching develop. Now, at the end of the day, the problem for them is, is they're only buying time because if they're going to crash the economies to reduce demand, all they're going to do is crash supply chains, drive inflation up worse. And as that inflation goes up more, again, you're going to, it's going to feed on itself. They have miscalculated in a big way. Maybe. Um, I can see why you argue that. I kind of hope you're wrong about that, that it's like a, that if you do it in a slow enough way, everyone adjusts and supply chains don't catastrophically collapse. Uh, it would be nice if I could say, no, you're definitely wrong. <laughs> Sadly, I can't say that. So um, our producer, Frank, um, uh, has some questions. I mean, I'd like to uh, I like it when Frank asks questions because, like, I'm I'm a uh, I spend a lot of time staring at financial markets, just way too much time, and I, I'm I'm pretty well briefed on stuff, and so I, I I shorthand lots of things. Frank doesn't, and he looks at things more like everybody else looks at them. What are you thinking, Frank? So I'm I'm curious about this potential long drafted NOPEC bill, and you know this has made its way through Congress a couple times, a couple rounds of it. Essentially what it would do, it was going to remove OPEC's immunity from competition law. Now that's clearly beneficial for us, but every time it comes up, whoever the leader is in Saudi Arabia, they always come out and they lobby hard about it. Um, you know, right now, obviously there's a little bit of tension between the U.S. and, and OPEC. You know, um, those production cuts are not exactly going to help us. And I think what's interesting is, you know, we hear this bill kind of come up a lot um, and make its rounds. But I don't know, you know, if it's came up during a time where inflation is this bad. You know, if you consider the current market conditions of what we have, I mean, it's kind of an extraordinary time for this to happen. So um, just from a tension standpoint, I mean, what, what, what could the fallout be if that is passed and we do start enforcing it and we finally, you know, see that come to, you know, the, 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 front, of, uh, the front of the stage? I mean, what, what, what do you think? Well, I, I'll preface it with by saying I don't think it'll pass, but uh, for, uh, I, would, I would point you to 2016 when it was up. The Saudis flat out threatened the U.S. dollar's reserve status. So this passes, we'll end the dollar's reserve status. And they can absolutely do that. It's a pretty simple calculus for them. It would they just go, look, we're done selling oil in dollars. We're going to sell it. We, we're going to demand physical gold for our oil. Have a good day. Right. And I, I agree with Luke. This is never going to happen. If it does happen, I'm going to get more popcorn because – and popcorn and puts, right? I have a T-shirt with popcorn and puts put written on it. Um, but you can't – the problem with Saudi Arabia – is it contains the two holiest sites in Islam. So in other cases, you might say, you've got oil, we've got military, you're going to do what we say. And smile while you say it nicely. 
But in the case of Saudi Arabia, you do not want a bunch of your soldiers traipsing around their holy places. You, you don't want anything looking like that. It would be just one constant war with one billion or more Muslims forever. That's why there has never been an attempt to strong arm the Saudis militarily. It doesn't make sense. You can't occupy that part of the world. If you wanted to occupy a part of the world with lots of oil, I would go for Iraq. <laughs> That's the bit I would occupy. And that wasn't such a great idea either. It didn't work out quite as smoothly as you'd like. That was yeah, part of a, a daisy chain of galactically bad policy choices dating back to the 90s. But So I was, I was working for Medley Advisors when that uh, situation arose, and we had a great seat to see what was happening. Um, you will not believe what the, administ- the Bush administration, um, you might call it the Cheney administration, you could choose. Um, but the, the, those guys were true believers, and the U.S. foreign policy community absolutely believed that this move would create a new dynamic for peace in the Middle East. And maybe they were wrong to think that. But we, we sent guys in to talk to the to Cheney's office. And they, they had, back before the World Trade Center was hit by planes, they told us that the road to peace in the Middle East leads via Baghdad. If you remember those times, people had T-shirts printed up saying, real men go to Tehran. Right. You may not remember that, but that was the policy dialogue. If we were really interested in imposing peace in the Middle East, we would invade Tehran. Of course, there are mountains there. It's not as easy as it looks. <laughs> well, and the Saudis, I hear, were not. They, they asked the U.S. not to go to, to Iraq. They said it was a very bad idea. And we didn't listen because we're, you know, we know better. I like to think of it as mostly a, as, as it's just one of the biggest, most gigantic wastes of money and lives ever. But otherwise, it wasn't. There's no real harm to it, right? apart from that. There was no real harm. Anywho, I, I don't know. People, the thing that was bad about it, the thing I think the most bad about it, isn't so much the disaster or the, the cost. Or you know, you can make mistakes. People make mistakes all the time. There's no point second guessing policy. People try. The disaster is that the fact that the foreign policy community in the U.S. actually believed what it was, you know, its own product, and that there is no alternative to that foreign policy community. Those guys, they sit around, they talk, and they all agree. Everybody agrees on everything. They agree on Russia. They agree. The only question is how to achieve it. That's what I think is a bigger disaster. Because, you know, if they're right, fine. And I'm an idiot. We know I'm an idiot. I don't know what I'm talking about. It's all fine. But if they're wrong, who is, who is there to question the, the determinations they reach and say, you know, guys, I'm not a hundred percent sure invading X, Y, or Z is actually the solution to this problem. And that's, you know, where the real issue, you know, people say, who's going to stop them? And, you know, I've said before is is compound interest is undefeated all time against empires. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> and that's, that's 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 where that's where we are right now. The United States needs to print the money to pay its interest on its true interest expense uh, right now, not, and it will get are, worse if we have a recession. Luke, you've ruined my day. It was bad to start with, but <laughs> the bit where you reminded me that we need liquefied natural gas in Massachusetts. That that was a real negative, you know, <laughs> ruin. And now you, it's just nothing you say is really helping. Tell me something positive. It's it's seventy five degrees here in Cleveland today. It's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, it's not. It's not actually. It's pretty warm here, but it's raining and in grey and everything. I, <sighs> so where should people look 
if they wanted to get more Groman, uh, more of your insights and, and to interface with what you're thinking better? Sure. Uh, they could check out our website, fftt-llc.com, uh, or check us out at, uh, at Luke Groman, L-U-K-E-G-R-O-M-E-N on Twitter. It's been a pleasure, Luke. Um, we should do Likewise. it again. Absolutely. I appreciate your time. All right. That's a wrap on the next big trade. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, head over to realvision.com for financial insight you won't find anywhere else. 